Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I will take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. This week, we'll talk about the resignation of Lucetta Scarafia, our guest from last week, and the entire staff of Women Church World. Then, we'll talk about Jerry's new book about the conclave that elected Pope Francis. I'm Colleen Dully. This is Inside the Vatican. So, good morning from New York, Jerry. Good morning from sunny Rome once again, Colleen. You make me want to move to Rome. (laughs) Well, you're welcome. (laughs) Last week, we brought you an interview with Lucetta Scarafia, the editor of Women Church World, a monthly magazine that comes out with the Vatican's daily newspaper, L'Osservatore Romano. On Tuesday, March 26th, she and the entire staff of Women Church World resigned in protest of what they saw as attempts by the new editor of the Osservatore Romano to undermine their publication. Scarafia said the new editor, Andrea Monda, had attempted to take over her position, and the all-female editorial board took issue with Monda recruiting women contributors for the newspaper, who held different and even opposing views to the women's magazine's editorial line, which skewed more progressive. They saw this as Monda trying to undermine their work. Monda said in a statement that he never attempted to undermine them and that he intends to keep the magazine operational, even though it's not clear who will be on the staff. Jerry explained to me how Scarafia had been close to the former editor of the Osservatore Romano and had had a lot of say about who contributed to it. But when the new editor-in-chief, Andrea Monda, came in, that changed. He made clear that he, he was the one who was going to choose which people wrote on the Vatican Daily. Got it. And... Uh, and I think uh, this was one bone of contention between hi- uh, him and Lucetta. Right. Uh, and, a di- and a difference to the previous one because they, she had a very different relationship with her for- with the former editor-in-chief. And so she was able to influence and say, this is a good person. I'd like this person. Whereas uh, when she has seen these past two months uh, women writing in the Osservatore Romana, they were n- not necess- they were not her choice. Right. And she felt that they were reflecting a different voice, a different opinion, perhaps even a contrary opinion. And uh, I think most of us hadn't really noticed the big difference, but uh, she was more sensitive to these issues and she felt this it wasn't going the way she would have liked. Like Jerry said, it's hard to pinpoint some of the differences between Scarafia's contributors and Monda's. So let's talk instead about what characterized Scarafia's style as an editor. Certainly she raised issues which uh, didn't please everybody in the Vatican, and I'm making an understatement. Mm -hmm. She uh, touched on hot issues which hitherto may have been taboo issues for the paper. She attracted a lot of international attention, and she more recently, in, before Christmas and again in February, raised the question of the role of women religious in the in the Vatican, and the role of women in the Vatican. Is touching on those kind of taboo issues something that caused a strain between uh, Lucetta and Andrea Monda? Well, touching taboos issues has been. Uh, one of the hallmarks of Francis's pontificate, he, he he has really felt that there are not taboo issues, that we must speak openly, boldly about the different issues. Right, but has that been the case for the Osservatore Romano? Well, uh, you know, some run faster than others. 
and uh, Francis is up there far in front of some of his cardinals and some of the people in the in the in the Vatican offices. Got it. Uh, and so Lucetta, in a way, re- was kind of uh, reflected some of this boldness, uh, if I would call it that. Uh, so, Jerry, what do you think is going to happen next with Women Church World? Well, the new editor-in-chief of the Vatican Daily has stated publicly yesterday that it will continue. He says there is a budget for it. Its uh, role will be will continue. And uh, he didn't say who would be the new editor of it or who, in fact, would be part of it. But he made clear it's not uh, going into the dustbin. If you want to learn more about the resignations of the Women Church World staff and what it can teach us about women in the Vatican, I've written a news analysis that I'll link in the show notes. Last week, America Magazine published the exclusive first excerpt from Jerry's new book, The Election of Pope Francis, an inside account of the conclave that changed history. The excerpt we published provides the ballot counts from the first round of voting, And you'll have to pick up the book to learn what happens at the rest of the conclave. Now, what happens in a conclave is super secret stuff. And Jerry's book is the first definitive historic record of what happened in the 2013 conclave. So we'll talk to Jerry a little bit about his method and what surprised him. And then we'll get into the way that people have reacted to these secrets being published. And what role the Holy Spirit has in all of this. How long did it take you to write this book and wade through all of these notes and everything? Well, I started writing the book in the summer of 2017. It took me one year exactly to write the book. Only? Yeah. That's surprising. I thought it would have taken a lot longer. Well, I had a lot of notes. I had a lot of things put together. And so I debated a lot in my head how to write the book. Would I write it one chapter, a chapter after chapter? And I, I felt this was a rather dreary way of doing it. And so one night I got the inspiration to write it as a journalist's diary. Mm-hmm. So I write as a diary starting on the day that Benedict announced his resignation, that's the 11th of February, mm-hmm. and concluding on the day that Francis began his inauguration of his pontificate the 19th of March. So it's a day by day. It's like somebody keeping a diary. And I had kept a lot of notes. I'd kept a lot of documents. I had kept newspapers. I had a lot of information. I think it's easy to forget that we don't just go right from Benedict's resignation to white smoke. There's a lot that happens in between. He announced it on the 11th of February. Mm-hmm. He concluded his pontificate on the 28th of February, the last date of February. Right. So from the 8 o'clock in Rome on the 28th of February, there was no Pope. That's when it concluded. And from that point on, you had what was known as a sede vacante, the empty seat. In that period, between that period and the election, the actual entry into the conclave, the cardinals assemble. They have plenary assemblies. And this is where they would talk about things that are, you know, pressing issues for the church. They talk about everything. They talk about everything. Well, what are the issues of the church? What kind of man we want, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Then they have their own private meetings, of course, in, in, as well. And those are very important. And I talk about those, obviously. And then they go into conclave. And they went into conclave on 
the morning of the 12th, they all went into Santa Marta, which is the guest house where Francis now lives. Mm -hmm. And then they had a mass in St. Peter's Basilica. And that evening on the 12th, they cast their first votes and they revealed for the first time who each of them thought before God was the best man to lead the church. And that's the extract we have published. Since most of Jerry's book is under embargo until April, that first ballot is the part we're going to talk about. Jerry was able to get the vote counts for this first round of voting, and the numbers tell a really interesting story about what the cardinals were looking for when voting started. There was no real hot favorite going in. Many people thought Cardinal Angelo Scola of Milan, uh, I think 72 years old at the time, was clearly the frontrunner. He was known to be very close to the former Cardinal Ratzinger, then Benedict XVI. He was seen as being indicated in some ways as the heir apparent. In a most unusual move, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, moved him from the Diocese of Venice to that of Milan. And people kind of took that as a sign that you know, he he wanted him to be his successor. Many people read it in that light. Uh, and so there was a lot of uncertainty going in. Would he come out or would somebody else? And nobody quite seemed to know who that somebody else might be. And the first vote reveals the uncertainty because, uh, as you see from what we published in America, one in five of the cardinals got a vote on that first ballot. Like Jerry said, 23 cardinals' names were put forward in the first round of voting. And the ones who got the most votes were basically neck and neck. Here are the numbers. Cardinal Angelo Scola, who was seen by some as the favorite, got 30 votes. Cardinal Bergoglio, who would become Pope Francis, got 26. But Jerry says he would have had 27 if someone hadn't misspelled his name as Brolio, which happens to be the name of the bishop who runs the U.S. Archdiocese for the military. The Canadian Cardinal Mark Willette came in third with 22 votes, and the American Cardinal Sean O'Malley from Boston came in fourth with 10. What you notice that despite the widespread, there were four candidates who really had more than 10 votes. And these obviously immediately would have struck the the electors as it's between these four. Mm -hmm. And there were some surprises in that four, right? Absolutely. I mean, the... The, many people here, they had thought that the, it would be between the Brazilian Cardinal Scherer, who came number five, uh, and so didn't have 10 votes, uh, and uh, Scola, but it, it wasn't that way. One of the surprises was the geographic distribution in an election that for hundreds of years it was assumed an Italian would win. Here in the top four, you had an Italian, an Argentinian, a Canadian, and an American, Cardinal O'Malley. This is the first time that any American cardinal has scored so highly in a papal election. Mm -hmm. We should specify United States American. Yes. And this was a, quite a surprise as well. He, I mean, he, he was very popular in Rome. He was very popular among the cardinals. He always wore his friar's habit. He also spoke Spanish and so he, he had many things. So th this was surprising. So you had four runners, three of the four. And if you include Scherer, who was number five, four of the five were from the Americas. 
for the first for the first time in a papal co- uh, election. So only one European with any serious chance of being elected, and he was Italian. Now the Italians had, uh, I think, twenty eight votes in the conclave. They had twenty eight electors. Electors, yes, including Scola. They had twenty eight electors, and he only got thirty votes. So it was clear from day one that either they all voted for him or else they were badly split. Now, what goes on inside of a conclave is top secret. There's actually a document from John Paul II that says any non-cardinal who attends a conclave and shares information from it is automatically excommunicated. And for any cardinal who attends, sharing information is, quote, a grave matter of conscience. I asked Jerry how people are reacting to the book and to these numbers being made public. Well, I've had, it's very interesting, I've had uh, feedback from several cardinals who are saying they're looking forward to reading to the book. I've had bishops who've said exactly the same. Some have congratulated me, and uh, uh, I've seen an enormous amount of interest uh, among people here, also among my colleagues in the media. Everybody feels that this is, you know, in a way, a breakthrough in information and understanding what happened because many people didn't quite understand what was happening at the conclave. So uh, I've had really very little or almost the only negative reactions I've seen have been on some of the blog sphere, in the blog sphere from some people, but a very small number. Mm. What are their critiques? Well, some people say, well, this raised questions over the secrecy. Did you see any um, ethical questions for yourself about reporting these numbers? No, because I, I didn't take any oath of uh, secrecy. If people gave me information, they knew what they were doing. They knew that it would be the persons who gave me the information knew that I would use it at some time, but they asked that it not be used immediately or not so close to the conclave. Now, I do not uh, judge the intentions of those who gave it to me, except they they saw it in a way as a historical uh, moment in the history of the church. And very interesting, I, you asked me the reaction here. Since, since I've written this, uh, since the first extract has come out, I've gathered new information that I didn't have. And people wrote in and said, this and this, so that if there's a second edition, I'll be able to add other little tidbits of information. As I say at the beginning of the, my introduction, it, it was like putting a mosaic together. I had so many pieces of information. We see like a big Vatican book come out every couple of months, right? And usually what happens is they come out, the reporters skim it, they, you know, look for the couple of pieces of you know, juicy information that were rumored to be in it. They write that up and then they throw the book aside and and we don't talk about it anymore. But your book seems different in that it has useful information for the historic record, right? Like people will keep coming back to this book. And that was really interesting to me. I think it's, uh, I, I wrote it very conscious that I was writing in a way something for history. Mm-hmm. But I also wrote in a way that I was describing a process which most people don't know and don't understand. I, I, I've seen here, I've seen journalists, we had more than 6,000 journalists covering the conclave, and many of them were parachuted in by the various news outlets or media operations that they were representing, and they had little idea of what was happening. 
And so they would ask people here. So I, I've tried to really map out what actually happens once the Pope has resigned or dies. It didn't, not in this case. And, uh, you know, what are the steps that lead to the actual election? What are the important moments? And uh, I had tried to move with a process of getting facts and being able to verify the facts and uh, trying to put in as much as possible what I knew to be really the situation. I haven't got it, gone into speculation in this book. I had known many cardinals for many years, and I have been, uh, I've received a lot of information. I've been able to cross-check the information I've got. I feel very secure on what I have written. So we've been talking a lot about uh, vote numbers and names in this kind of political sense. And you mentioned even that some of the critics, you know, are also, uh, they're concerned with the political side of things. But, you know, Catholics also think that the Holy Spirit is at work in a conclave. So I'm wondering, you know, how do you, how do you see that happening? How do you see the Holy Spirit at work in these votes and uh, the way that the way that the Holy Spirit moves the, the men electing these, the Pope? Well, I hope what I've brought out in the book is that uh, the, the cardinals engaged in what we now call a process of discernment. And I, I, I was very much struck by the insistence of the cardinals, you know, that this was a very spiritual exercise, that they were praying deeply to God. They were trying to work out uh, what God was saying through the various agents that the people they met through the various signs that were being given. Uh, Very definitely, I hope it comes out in the book that this was a very, it wasn't a simple political operation like you have at party conferences or in the election for presidents or such like. It it wasn't that. It it was a deeply spiritual, they they understood that they, they were there electing a leader for the 1.2, 1.3 billion Catholics in the world. Yes, people got together and talked and uh, discussed and such like, but they were all conscious. I, right to the end, I was deeply impressed by this whole spiritual dimension that surrounded the election. Jerry's book is available for pre-order now on Amazon and orbisbooks.com, and it'll be published on April 13th. It's called The Election of Pope Francis, an inside account of the conclave that changed history. And as always, I'll put a link to that and to the excerpt America published in the show notes. I'm looking forward to the launch in New York in two weeks' time. Yeah, Jerry, I'm looking forward to seeing you and Elisabetta and the kids. Tell them I said hello. <laughs> thank you, thank you. They're, they're all looking forward to this. It's a it's a great moment uh, for, for us as a family because they, they have uh, suffered a lot of time that I've had to take from them to put in the book. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it, it turned out great and I'm sure they're very proud of you. Inside the Vatican is produced by me, Colleen Dully. Our executive producer is Eric Sundrup. Our news producer is Kevin Clark. Our audio engineer is Karen Freeman. Inside the Vatican is mixed by Oliver Lazarus. Our studio manager is Leopold Stubner. 
You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org or follow us on Twitter at americamag. For America Media, I'm Colleen Dully with Gerard O'Connell. See you next week.